listening to the Down the Wormhole podcast, exploring the strange and fascinating relationship between science and religion. This week, we are exploring how that relationship gets worked out in real life with one of the current Sinai and Synapses fellows. Sinai and Synapses is a two-year fellowship committed to elevating the discourse surrounding religion and science and where the five of us first met. So, without further ado... Our guest today is a PhD student in constructive theology at Boston University. He focuses primarily on how technology affects religious and religious-like ideas. His current research examines transhumanist and other secular communities, asking questions about the future of religious life. I would like to welcome to the show today, Seth Viegas. Yeah, thanks for having me. Welcome. Hey, to be here. wonderful to have you here. Um, I love being able to talk with people who are still currently working on their PhD mm-hmm. because, like, you're so deeply into one specific thing right now. Mm-hmm. And uh, maybe you could tell people where in the journey you are currently. Yeah, so like you mentioned, I'm at Boston University right now. I'm in my fourth year. And the way that PhDs work at American universities, you spend a couple years doing coursework, then you go through an exam stage, and then after that, you propose your dissertation. And so that's the stage I'm at right now. So I'm trying to propose my dissertation for what I'm going to be working on for the rest of my time at Boston University. Are you allowed to tip your tip your hand and tell us what you're thinking about? Yeah, I mean, I was working on this even today. It's, <laughs> it's kind of my, my ongoing work. I, I'm mainly interested in in how the culture around technology, specifically forms of techno-utopianism. So, so transhumanism has aspects of techno-utopianism. And I would kind of class, I mean, as a current PhD student, I'd be pretty finicky about how I classify these things. But uh, (laughs) what's important to note is we're often having lots of debates today about norms, but secular movements are really ill-equipped to talk about those things. So you might think of someone recently like uh, Sam Harris, who wrote The Moral Landscape, who talks about, you know, there are ways to at least delineate between good and bad. And if you can do that, you can make other sorts of moral judgments. But even even if you can say for sure what's bad, that's not that's very different from casting a vision for the future. And what I end up seeing in transhumanist movements is they kind of take the evolu- or the idea of evolution to its logical maximum of let's forward that process as much as possible, whether through genetics technologies, through um, computer technologies. And there's this whole aesthetic to, to, to the movement that kind of goes unacknowledged. And that's the thing they kind of fall in love with without... Uh, I don't know if that quite makes sense, right? But when we're talking about the things that inspire people, that that's why critics of transhumanism often call it a religious movement, even though most transhumanists are, they would say, atheist agnostics. So, so to call them religious, it doesn't really fit into their own vocabulary, but there's something about the movement and the way that it's motivated, and specifically this forward casting of a particular kind of normative vision that makes it start to hedge on religious territory. And I actually think that that's kind of a good thing because there might be more potential for crosstalk between, say, religious people and transhumanists because you're actually talking that point about norms. Whereas the way I kind of read the prior conversation is, oh, like, hey, you want to tell me to be like this, but I don't think there's a God, right? Hmm. Um, What's interesting about transhumanism when they're talking about, say, resurrecting people from the dead, giving people immortality, it's almost like, well, actually, you and, say, 
con and conservative Christian people in America might agree on the sorts of things that should happen. You just don't agree about how it's going to happen. Hmm. And so I do think that my work is trying to create that space such that, you know, we can kind of have more of those fruitful conversations to come to a more of a, a normative ethic around what we should do and actually what even technology is for. And I think that the places where transhumanism really falls off is when it appears to be really self-serving. So someone like Zoltan Iswan, for instance, he wrote this, a book on transhumanism. It, it's kind of, it takes the form of a novel and, you know, it's, it's a little bit of a thriller. I don't know if it's really a, a great book as, <laughs> as far as, you know, literary masterpieces go. But it, it does kind of speak of this sort of self-serving vision of I want the singularity to happen because I will live forever, mm -hmm. right? And it, I, it, it's you know, and so we could get into conversations about virtue and whatnot. But it, it seems to me that that's not the right way to go when you're trying to frame what these technologies should be for everyone. Of just some sort of I don't know, really like inwardly focused self-interest. Mm-hmm. It does seem to me that at the root of a lot of at least the narrative that I've heard surrounding mm -hmm. transhumanism is it's kind of the technological heir to that age old quest for uh, eternal life. Right. We're all mm -hmm. Gilgamesh looking for uh, the whatever the thing was that he was looking for. I can't remember now that he he fell mm -hmm. asleep in the snake ate. Um, yeah. Yeah, so, so someone like Yuval Harari would probably agree with you. So that's an argument he makes in Homo Deus, actually, is that, that there's kind of a recreation of religious themes in our specifically our technological life. Hmm. And I, I just think that that's really interesting. It says something about who we are as people. And again, if we're going back to older arguments that used to be had in science and religion between people who would be openly atheists against religious communities where they'd be kind of rejecting the sort of old C.S. Lewis argument that we have some sort of religious yearning hmm. innate to us. And so to have that pop up again at this point in history is really interesting, especially when the kinds of statistics we see is, is there's more mass secularization all over the world than, than ever before. Well, hmm. I mean, as other parts of the world do get more religious, of course, but, uh, it, especially in certain nations, it is interesting that that's happening here. Like the resurgence of a particular kind of religiosity in the midst of another kind of secularization, but they're both happening at the same time. So let's take a step back. Um, mm -hmm. I realize we're using terms that we haven't uh, unpacked at all. Um, can you just give us a brief overview about what you mean when you say transhumanism? Yeah, so... When I'm talking about transhumanism, I'm basically talking about a movement of people. So it's a, it's, it's a term referring to a particular group. And these people are interested in using technology to radically change the human condition. And, and I do mean the human condition in a more philosophical, religious sense in which, say, humans are, 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 are humans things that live in bodies is an open question in transhumanism. Hmm. And so there's, there's a particular kind of mutability of what it means to be human. And that's actually why I think the, you know, the prefix there of trans is really telling about what the movement is. And just to give a little bit of backstory, transhumanism is very much influenced by the Enlightenment. So it has a lot of Western European ideas, and that's actually one of the reasons why it's been criticized, is in part because of the people who are in transhumanist circles tend to be a particular demographics. 
So what would you say the distinction between transhumanism and humanism? Like, are they at all the same? Or is the only similarity being that the use of the word? They definitely do have similarities. Okay. I would say most transhumanists would probably, you know, say that they hold humanist ideals, or at least in, in one form or another. But tra transhumanism itself has a much broader range of ideas than I think those just uh, characterizing humanism. So, so for instance, the kind of the easiest way to demonstrate this is to talk about the varying political ideologies, where there's a kind of a socialist, you know, leftward leaning. Mm -hmm part of transhumanism that kind of envisions using technology for equitable distribution of resources, reinventing certain forms of labor. Whereas there's this other end that's completely libertarian in its focus, which is about completely unregulated unreg development of technology, allowing people to experiment on themselves and, and, and whatnot. And so to, to say that those are just humanist ideas, they're humanists in the sense that they both are prioritizing a certain form of rationality and specifically, a, um, I, I don't want to use like a too complicated word, but a transcendental rationality. And all I mean by that is it's a rationality that doesn't exist inside of anybody's mind, but which all minds can there can conform to. Okay. So it's, you know, so, so basically if we're all being logical, then our logic should all line up and that those <laughs> logics and that it, we're logical in the same way that computers are logical, even though our minds are different. Okay. So, so this is basically, uh, you know, the software metaphor, for instance, is what kind of makes that possible. Okay. I don't, I don't know if I buy it though. <laughs> well, 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 sure. But, but I do like that the movement does bring up a lot of these questions that I mm -hmm. think, especially in the 20th century, the way I sort of see philosophy, especially the turn towards more analytic forms of philosophy is a kind of it's a rebuttal of the declaration by those philosophers that big questions were irrelevant because mm -hmm. it seems now that the practical consequences of those things, especially, oh, if you choose to put yourself into a computer, is that really you? There's kind of some sort of pragmatic consequences that go on in the real world. And it is important how we answer those questions, too, even in a religious sense, because if I choose to keep myself here and I'm keeping myself away from, say, heaven with God, then that's problematic in a theological sense. So the fact that transhumanism is actually raising, like pu putting the onus back on those questions is something I really appreciate about the movement. And I do think it's a real opportunity for forwarding the, the religion and science dialogue as it is right now. And I know that that is often brought up as an example of uploading your consciousness and living forever. Sure. Are there really people who want to live forever? It sounds awful. Yeah, yeah, yeah. People definitely do. Well, so there was that. Why? So, so if, if there's nothing else, right, why wouldn't you want to live forever? And especially if, you know, your life is good. It's not something I would personally want. But but I actually think, you know, one of the, the critiques I have of this movement is that when they talk about living forever, they do imagine a kind of eschatological, eschatological future, right, which is just the future of the end times, the way that things will be, mm -hmm. you know, kind of going on out into eternity. They, they imagine that future almost in the way that a Christian would, right? A, a future without hmm. toil, a future without work, a future in a kind of paradise. And so the reason why the digital uploading scenario is so favorable is because when I've talked to transhumanists about this, they imagine, say, oh, I'm in a computer living out some sort of fantasy. Mm -hmm. 
Mm. Right. It's not I'm living out. It's not like, oh, you know, I'm working my nine to five. Okay, And I'll just work my nine to five, you know, ad infinitum to eternity. (laughs) Right. They they, they don't mean that. So they're in the matrix. Yeah. 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 And I think that that's that that's really interesting, too, because that that particular vision assumes that you would have AI agents that are benevolent enough to kind of be fighting against reality on your behalf for all of eternity. Mm. And so you have this, again, a kind of a recreation of a benevolent God idea, even <laughs> in the idea of a, a virtual reality scenario. Yeah. How much more likely is it that the AI is not benevolent? I watch too much sci-fi, I think. <laughs> right, 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 right. So, so, so the idea of AI having a very contingent future where it could be very good or very bad is actually, so one of the pioneers of the movement, Nick Bostrom, he's at Oxford, you know, he came out with this book called Super Intelligences. And it's interesting to see the trajectory of his thought because he's very pro-technology at the start. But by the time Super Intelligence comes out, and I think it's in, uh, I can't remember the exact year, but he, he's basically flipped in a sense that he either thinks that AI will be really good or really bad, but probably not in the middle. But like it, it'll either kind of accelerate the end of things much faster because uh, the AI will be trying to manipulate us or, you know, put us into some end that we don't want. Mm-hmm. Or it'll be genuinely helpful, uh, you know, actually help us to understand our own goals. This is something they actually posits in, in super intelligences that you create an AI that can not only understand what what it is we want it to do, but also what we would have asked for it to do if we were smart enough to ask for the right things, right? And, and so there's this kind of accelerating of ethics in that view because the AI is like, oh, you know, you would have asked for this had you had more time or, you know, been able to think about it longer. <sighs> yeah. So how does someone with a bachelor's in English um, end up what you're doing now? <laughs> Tell me about well, <laughs> about your journey. <laughs> okay, I, I know in, English gets a lot of gets a bad rap, but it turns hey, out it's it, I, it's I'm, it's a good degree if you read the books. <laughs> I, I I have a degree in in ancient Greek, so I'm sure, I'm a fellow sure. language person. Sure, I, I I was like one class away from a minor in classics, but I thought that would hurt my resume, so I didn't do it. Ouch. Uh, <laughs> no, 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 it's okay. I'm just I'm just joking. <laughs> Uh, but, but you know, I read a lot of sci-fi books while I was at Stanford, so, so that's partially it. Uh, I, I got to, you know, so so yeah, I, I went to Stanford as an undergrad. That's in part, I got inspired to some of these things. Uh, I had a lot of friends who actually were in startups and then ended up at big tech companies, which raised a lot of ethical concerns for people. Of how do I relate to the kinds of code that I'm making? That's a part of this bigger process that I can't really see or over con- or control. Yeah, I mean, these are kind of concerns of if you're working at a big company, of course. But it's interesting with tech because there's a kind of detachment between you, what your software does, and then the action, the kind of harm that the software might do after that Mm -hmm. or decisions that might be made after that. And so it can can be a little complicated. And it was actually when I was in seminary uh, at Fuller and... I would see people really scared of technology and I couldn't really understand why. And it was in part because they didn't see tech as being made by people, right? It was just kind of this ethereal thing that you interact with. And the, and I was like, oh, but you know, like I know people who work at Facebook, 
right? I, I know they're not trying to, you know, at least I know that person is not trying to <laughs> do whatever it is that my friend's concerned about. And it was out of that, thought, you know, this kind of recurring question of what is it that we should be making and why? And, and I think that's, again, that's one of those big questions that we need to, to answer. And I mean, we can even see this on the polit- political landscape, our inability to, uh, you know, even create a realm in which we can have a kind of consensus is really problematic. And so I'm hoping, you know, to teach ethics, to, you know, really talk to people about things, to really help them things that are different. Actually, this past Monday, I was a guest lecturer in a class on, you know, kind of tech and ethics and, and whatnot. And I've been actively creating materials to help people ask questions as they're designing something, what we call an ethics audit. So someone will design a piece of software, then they'll have a series of questions that they'll go through. And we've also developed case studies with uh, with questions about them too. So like, uh, for instance, on Monday, I took them through a, a case study based on Cambridge Analytica, which is about, you know, behavior modification, manipulating people to vote a certain way. And, you know, basically put them in that situation through the way it was worded. It was written in second person. So like, you know, your supervisor tells you this, right? Or, you know, you're on a team that's doing this having them answer some questions and then just being like, oh, you know, one of the students even said, like, because of the way the case was written, I would have had a hard time in the situation of the thing just happening, even though I didn't like what was happening. And I think that that happens a lot. And I think that the risk of that is actually probably hired a tech company that might be somewhere else because of, like I said, there's this kind of detachment when it comes to action and technology. Hmm. And so philosophy can actually help to clarify some of these things. But, you know, most people are convinced that the humanities is useless, uh, which, is, which is another problem entirely. But, uh, but, but like I said, I, I do think that those things have all come to a head for me. I, I do think my background in English has actually really served me well. Mm. And, you know, it's interesting talking to engineers because sometimes they'll read some of the books I read as an undergrad and they don't seem to understand the point of the book was not to make the thing that was in the book. Not, not to, you know, <laughs> not, not, not to see how quickly they can prototype it. Uh-huh. Right. Like, uh, and that just goes back to like, you know, are, are we really understanding what these things are about? Uh, actually, a really good example of this is deep fakes. Mm. I, I heard an interview about a year ago with one of the engineers and, you know, the reporter asked the question like, oh, aren't you worried about the, the potential consequences of a technology like this? And the engineer was like, well, there could be consequences, but, you know, that's not really our problem. And, and, and I just I just think that that's. That's completely the wrong attitude. So wait, can you wait? Hold on, hold on, the, hold on. Sorry to interrupt. So you, they were asked yeah. about the potential consequences of deep fakes, and they were saying there wasn't not their concern. Yeah, it's not something that they're doing, right? right? It's not a kind of action that they're taking, and this is what I mean by okay the the fact that it, it, there's this kind of gap that occurs between people where they the they don't feel the same kind of psychological need to take responsibility that they might in other kinds of situations. So, so for instance, if I pull a lever and something happens that there's kind of a, there's a direct causal chain there. That's really easy for my mind to follow. But if, if I make something that does something right, and it could be used for a thousand other purposes and a few of them are wrong, right. I might not be concerned as concerned with that. And I think actually with de- defects, that's one of the things that's happening is people are like, oh, well, you know, you could use it to entertain people too. You don't have to make things that will, you know, destabilize society. <laughs> but the fact that you could destabilize society 
it is one of the things that's made possible by a particular kind of technology. Okay. Mm-hmm. Okay. It reminds me, it's, I mean, that's the whole plot of Jurassic Park. I was going to say the same every thing. Every single Michael Crichton book. Yeah. Right? Your scientists were so preoccupied well, with if they could, whether they or should. not they could, they never stopped uh, to think if, think they, if should. they should. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. I love Ian Malcolm. Oh, yeah. I love that movie. <laughs> so I, it also strikes me that we are living, and I'll, I'll tell the, um, the folks at home that it is now November 11th, 2020. I'm not sure when this will air. So I feel like I have to say that because I don't know what sure. the future is going to look like uh, sure. 10 minutes from now. But we are kind of in the midst of an epistemological crisis. And like mm-hmm. no one knows where truth is. And there's mm-hmm. just so much disinformation that people that people absorb that then the common refrain is, well, I just don't know what to believe anymore. Mm-hmm. I mean, this mm-hmm. person makes some good points, and this YouTube video with a person in a lab coat said this, and I don't know. Who knows? Mm-hmm. Nobody knows. Um, and is there at a way out of this? <laughs> like, give me your bright and shining mm-hmm. hope for the future, because that's all I need right now is a little bit of bright and shining hope. <laughs> uh, hope. Uh, sorry, this is actually one of the issues I'm kind of pessimistic about. No. Uh, so, so, sorry, just let me explain. Yeah, why. Yeah, we, okay. we might get to a hopeful fl- place, okay. but I need I need to I need to talk <laughs> Where's through, Rachel talk through what I'm thinking about. So, so one of the the real when I was looking at Cambridge Analytica in particular, one of the things that happened was they were able to identify what kinds of buttons to push to get people to take action on issues, right? Mm-hmm. Who might otherwise be likely to do things, and we see this all over the place in media in. Uh, most of the big social media companies do this where they're explicitly trying to identify a type of person you are, right? Like fit you into a kind of archetype. Mm-hmm. And then based on that archetype, be able to k- kind of nudge you in certain directions to do something. What, what's so nefarious about something like Cambridge Analytica is not just that they're able to identify people's types with you know data that they shouldn't have had access to, but that because they knew that they wanted to nudge people in a particular direction, even if they didn't have the kind of actual media to nudge people in that direction, they chose to make it up because they knew what buttons to push. They knew what kinds of stories would get them to act that way. And so they created those stories to make that happen. Does that sort of, does that make sense? And, and that's, yeah. and, and, and that's what I mean about the, the deliberate creation of misinformation. And so, you know, people will have different kinds of technological solutions to that, you know, through machine learning or whatnot. But what's interesting is you're going to have these adversarial monitor, uh, like models of machine learning where certain things are try- really trying hard to, to make fake news and other kinds of networks are trying really hard to catch the fake news in this kind of perpetual arms race. Mm. And I, I don't see that as the ultimate solution because those will just get, you know, Worse and worse. You'll just have more and more convincing forms of fake news and well, and also detection systems that are more and more accurate at getting them. But that doesn't tell you that doesn't make you trust anything more inherently. No, people in my feeds are still sharing those posts, even though you have to click on a button to see them because Facebook and Twitter tell you that they're fake. They don't care. Right. 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 And, And this is where, you know, you have to do critical reasoning and whatnot. And also one of the things I do personally is I try to be really aware of what are the things that push my buttons. And 
And so to, to trying to be really disciplined in that. And, uh, you know, maybe this even harkens back to more like Buddhist, you know, forms of thinking where I'm really conscious of the way my thoughts are being processed at a particular moment. Mm. Right. And I, I think that those are the kinds of practices I would definitely advise. And, and especially just for people to pay attention to what's getting a rise out of them, because that's something that Facebook knows. Right. That's something that, you know, right. You know, whenever you're using anything, it's that's being tracked explicitly. And so rather than allowing someone else to sort of nudge that, and this is a, you know, Zach, I know you mentioned before, I don't have a big digital footprint, but one of the reasons why I don't do that is because I don't want to feed that information that I don't understand into a system, you know, to then understand me better than I understand myself. Hmm. And so I have to be in this constant process of, of self-knowledge of why is it that I'm, am I falling a rabbit hole somewhere? Am I, am I getting too caught up in something? You know, you know what, what's actually around me? You know, just these sort of basic things. Yeah. When, for those at home who uh, weren't a part of our conversation before mm-hmm. we recorded, I, before these interviews, I, I try to do a good amount of research into the, the person that I'm talking to and to, um, see the things that they've written, the things they've done and said, and whatever they put out there out, out in the world. And most people have quite a bit between mm-hmm. Facebook and Instagram and Twitter and LinkedIn and even just Google searches and mm-hmm. personal websites and blogs and professional websites. And I'm usually able to get quite a bit about somebody, but you, Seth, you were a bit of an enigma. So... Yeah, well, I hope that's the way the the social media companies see me too. So, So, oh man, so you mean you don't go? How do you do that in this day and age? To not have a big digital footprint? Seriously, like right? This just goes back to to what are these things for? So, so the things I post on Facebook are for a particular reason. It's to connect with my family in particular. Okay. It's to connect with people I haven't seen in a while, and I use it for that. But I'm not on Facebook to get news. If I want news, I'll go to the New York Times. I'll, you know, I'll, you know, I'll check Google News and go through a bunch of things, right? And so these things have, they're, they're tools, and I make sure to use them as tools. They're pieces of technology. I'm, I'm the one in charge. I'm the one in control. And I'm actually very lucky in the sense that I don't feel social pressure as acutely as, uh, as other people do, you know, and, you know, that's gotten me to trouble, of course, at, at some points <laughs> in my life. But, but I think it's been very useful in, in this day and mm-hmm. age because I'm able to stop myself a lot more than other people in, in terms of like, oh, you know, someone said something kind of inflammatory. Okay, I'm not going to respond right now. I'm going to think about what's happening. And then if it's a conversation I want to have, I'll, I'll follow up with them. Maybe I'll have a, a phone call, a Skype call or something that's more personable than just writing a snide comment in the moment, which is something I could certainly do. That's also why I actually don't use Twitter almost at all, because the kind of behavior that the network encourages is not one that I'm comfortable with. And it's also one in which I see people, I, I would say, be- behaving in a way that I don't think is ideal and does not conform to my own personal sense of what's virtuous. Okay. And so I, I try to hold I try to hold myself to a high standard, I suppose. And also even when it comes to things that I publish, I'm very conscious of the fact now that those things are out there forever. 
um, in part because you know I did used to blog a little bit, but my opinions have changed on a lot of things even since since college. And so having things that I'm comfortable putting out there that I could be wrong about and knowing that I could be wrong about them, right? And so hmm. th- there's only so many of those types of things, but that also means I'm not just responding to everything in the moment in the way that a lot of our culture encourages now, which again, isn't going to be okay with certain kinds of people, but that, that's a choice I've chosen to make because I don't like, I, I don't like that impulsive kind of thinking. Yeah. No, I like that. Yeah. The two, I took two weeks before I became, before I became a full-time pastor to scour my entire digital presence, mm-hmm. any social media account that I had had my whole life, you know, back to MySpace and Zanga and Mm-hmm. WordPress things and just anything at all, looking through every single Facebook post I'd made for a, a decade, mm-hmm. um, ju- just to be sure that does this still reflect something that I'm proud to present or does this yeah. require um, more explanation than I'm able to give in this moment? And will this cause undue consternation for my for my people should they find this? And right. I'm glad I did that. It And... Uh, Somebody told me once to um, live your life in such a way that all of your posts could be public. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I completely agree with that. Uh, actually, uh, m- my website just went live a couple weeks ago, and uh, I'm hoping to build out some of the stuff I've had from the past. I'm hoping to have like kind of archives mm-hmm. on there. But the intention is to make it a kind of a persistent digital space that people can go through at their leisure. And so it's not supposed to look like a blog because a blog encourages the, the wrong kind of behavior. It's not a stream of consciousness. This is stuff that's meant to be up there. And so anyway, it, that's just what I think about these social media websites. But the, the reason why I treat them that way is because I don't like the way that they're networked together, the way the technology works, the kind of behavior it encourages and, and whatnot. And so there are other ways to be online. And so I'd rather be in charge of that than mm. having, having it dictated to me. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, let's shift it then. Mm-hmm. What are what are some of the ways? Like you look into the future and you look into what these communities are doing and dreaming about and creating mm-hmm. and these tech companies. Sure. Like in what ways are, is technology potentially going to make us better citizens of Earth? I think educational technology is actually really really cool. So, for instance, there's lots of you know, big courses that people can take for free. Usually a thing that you might get charged for something like a certification. So Stanford's actually put out some of these things on machine learning. Hmm. And so, you know, it, it, I guess it is funny. We talked about misinformation earlier, but misinformation is almost always about current events. But around persistent knowledge of science, you know, math, you know, all these other sorts of things, we really do have access to more of that than ever before. Hmm. And if you want access to a book, and I've actually been, you know, somewhat grateful to the, the COVID lockdown in this sense. A lot of books are being digitized now. And so I have access to a lot of resources I might not otherwise have access to. And I I also lose physical books all the time, you know, if I, if I move or something like that or, you know, just writing notes down. And so being able to build a kind of personal database around those things is something that's that, that's really cool. And yeah, I do like the idea of having, you know, a digital digital memory. I mean, we already use, you know, our computers as an extension of our brains in a lot of senses. But it, it's, 
I do think that there's real room in that for different kinds of thoughts that weren't possible before, just because we have access to more stuff than before. Mm. Uh, I also think uh, other areas where I, I think uh, autonomous cars are probably be really good for society. Uh, you know, just in terms of air rates, I, I actually, uh, you know, when I was in high school, I, I had an experience where I was driving my friends back from a trip and, uh, you know, mom, if you're listening to this, uh, you know, just, just ignore what I'm about to say. <laughs> but, uh, you know, I, I was on the, I was on the highway, right. And, you know, all my friends were asleep in the car. I had been driving for like six or seven hours and I nodded off for a second, second, right. And almost got into an accident. And, you know, that was really, you know, that, you know, like, you know, no one in the car really knew what happened, right? It just kind of drifted from one lane, right? You know, so somebody honked at me. But it's mm-hmm. just one of those things where it's just like, you know, that little lapse could have been way worse. Like, like if I had been, say, in a different lane, I might have drifted into, you know, into a wall or something. Or, or you know, I was lucky that another car was paying attention. It, you know, just all those sorts of things. So I do think that that kind of technology is one I'm really optimistic about. I actually used to see autonomous cars on the road back when I was at Stanford, back in like, you know, 2011, 2012, 2013. And, you know, I do think that there are problems with the technology that people will will work out. And it's really important to recognize those limitations, not to idealize the technology beyond its capabilities. But I do think there are areas like that, or even say areas like medicine, where you might be able to use statistics to get more of a personal kind of diagnosis. I've had, you know, misdiagnosis in the past. Uh, I, I don't want people to be too confident and say a robo doctor over their own doctor mm-hmm. at this point, but the, those kinds of tools are really, really powerful. And I do think it is those kinds of breakthroughs that make, you know, say transhumanists optimistic, but it was also reason for other people to be optimistic as well. Mm. Yeah, I'm really encouraged by the sorts of things that they're able to come up with in in understanding COVID so quickly with mm-hmm. the the AI uh, sort of machine learning mm-hmm. deals that feel a lot like magic to me. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it it does. I hear a lot of people say any any sentence really that has the word algorithm feels like it might as well have mm-hmm. abracadabra in it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I just trust that there's somebody who understands how the magic works, and then they give me the product in much the same way that mm-hmm. I think a lot of my parishioners do for me, that I yeah. have some magic connection to God, and then I can give them mm-hmm. the little slice of heaven. Um, so are there other areas in this uh relationship between science and religion that that interest you that that you've thought a lot about other areas uh i I know we've mentioned this already but the the idea of whether people have a soul or not is one that comes up a lot in transhumanism in part because there's there's this strange inversion that's happened where you have all the theologians saying no no no, you are a body you (laughs) you can't just abandon it (laughs) and you have a lot of uh Secular people saying, no, 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 like what I actually am is just the the pattern of consciousness that makes me up. It's not particular to the kind of matter that I am at any given moment because that's constantly in a state of flux. And so, you know, copying that pattern should be enough. And I think that that's really interesting that that sort of thing is is possible. 
Because again, if you're if you're to follow the religion and science com- conversation, you'd be like, oh, like great, the, the theologians seem to agree in some sense with the you know w- w- with the people uh, after a long debate about things like evolution that you know bodies are really important they shouldn't be taken for granted and you have a new group come along that's like well uh, uh it seems to me you know because i can really imagine this sort of thing happening then perhaps it's possible uh and it's interesting because even when people talk about uploading themselves into a computer they really mean something like copying yourself into a computer but what's interesting is uh, Hans Moravec, as far back, I think he wrote this essay in 1988. He wrote a uh, Pigs in Cyberspace, which is just it's just basically the, this really short article talking about if we were to put you in a computer, you wouldn't know what to do, <laughs> right? <laughs> like, like you have a nervous system, yeah. you move your arms and stuff. You're not software, yeah. but like why? Like why would you your brain know what to do if you were uploaded? That doesn't make any sense, and. It, 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 and, and so it, it's really interesting that that stuff like that mm. that happens. And I think part of it's convenience. But when I have talked to transhumanists about this, they, they one in particular said that he understands that he would probably die, right? Like meaning him, like his physical sense. But if some copy of him could live on that he was convinced that was him, then he would be satisfied. And so to see them kind of resolve it that way, that even the the kinds of ways in which people think about it is probably a little bit more complicated, where, you know, one of the old theological debates was, okay, but what if I, you know, I'll die, but some copy of me will be made and that's the person who will live in heaven, Mm -hmm. right? The resurrection Mm -hmm. doesn't actually involve me. It involves some other person that's just like me, but isn't me, right? The kind of thing that makes me, me is lacking. And... Again, the the theological parallels are just so striking. And and I actually think someone with an education in theology is particularly seated to spot those things. And and if you're familiar with the way that those debates have happened or or the fact that they've occurred at all, you can kind of intervene in these secular debates a little bit and be like, hey, like, you know, this actually mirrors this other sort of conversation. Right. How is how is it that you think about that? Yeah. And I mean, in the Christian church, they had arguments for hundreds of years about how to properly dispose of bodies, because in the resurrection, would you get a brand new body or would you have to reuse your old parts? And if so, is it really you if it's, you know, some reimagined body from the earth? But then what about cremation? What about people who died a long time ago? What about people get ate by bears? Like there's all of these really practical applications because then once you've landed on one side, then that informs Mm -hmm. what you have to say about the soul, whether that is an intrinsic part of your living being or if that's some separate entity within you or some just some level of some deep subconscious. Yeah, I don't know if theology ever came up with a great answer. I think, well, theologians came up with every answer possible. <laughs> they did, they did, yeah, way, that's probably a better way shape to put or it. Form. Yeah. Um, I gotta say though, that idea that uh, one's soul is the sum of their uh, consciousness, as it were, mm-hmm. I feel a lot more comfortable with that than the idea of some ethereal glowing substance that exists within you and without you and that was around before you and will be around mm-hmm. afterwards. Um, like that just kind of makes a little bit more sense to my brain. Yeah, and and there is, you know, there's so 
I think there is psychological evidence that our sense of self is somewhat artificial, right? Like we think of ourselves as being more together than we probably are. That, you know, I don't, that, that, I don't think know, of myself kind of, as more well, together. Well, there's, there's a kind of artificial. <laughs> uh, 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 no, 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 no. I'm just no, kidding. No, 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 as being like a, like, as being a particular thing. All right, uh-huh. I'm kidding. So, so, so it's like our, our, our sense of self is something I don't know. It's almost like a feedback loop in our mind, right? Mm-hmm. Where you have to have enough of it to have it, but once you have it, you have it, and it's <laughs> it's it's not really clear how it even comes about necessarily. You know, if you if you look at the at the brain and try to study it neuroscientifically, it, you know, you can't point to a particular thing and be like, oh, you know, if we take out this, you know, then the sense of self is gone, right? It's it's an emergent phenomenon of the system. But, but that's in part why people find the patternist interpretation of the self to be pretty convincing, be- especially because it's not dependent upon particular bits of matter to remain the same when we know that our bodies are constantly regenerating themselves. And, and so therefore, like with information, the thing that's persistent across all those different bodily states is the pattern, not the body. There's something deeply comforting um, about the idea of a persistent soul or a persistent mm-hmm. self. And I, I, I deal with a lot of people who are losing loved ones slowly to mm-hmm. dementia. Yeah. And as it feels like that person's dying every day. And some days they come back from the dead mm-hmm. and they know your face again. But then the next day yeah. they don't know who you are. They're not acting like themselves. Mm-hmm. And it's just, it's their body, but they're gone. And... Mm-hmm. They need to hold on to a hope that their loved one is still in there somewhere and that it's just the wires are crossed, but that they're unchanged within there. And I, I'm totally fine with that. I think mm-hmm. that that is helpful to a lot of people to imagine the self that way. And I don't have a better narrative for them that is uh, that I feel is the definitive fact-based argument about what the self is. So if if that one works for you, then great. Um, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm all about that. Um, but do you have a sense of like, what makes a person who they are? Like what, where is the depth of, of a human? Who is the you that is you that is you that you seem to know, mm-hmm. but can't really identify? Um, is that something that that develops over time, like an emergent phenomenon, mm-hmm. or is that something that you are a part of your genetics? Is it part of brain development? Is there uh, some kind of transcendent spiritual soul part of that? Like, where do you fall into that? For for me, I think I for for now at least, I'm kind of in a, a similar place to Aristotle, where there's a kind of thisness about particular things and the the reason that i say that is because if my body changes i really do think that i change so for instance if i you know i i've you know i'm not as young as i used to be even though i still look like i'm in high school sometimes and (laughs) and so you know i I have to i have to go through these processes especially when COVID hit of like not feeling like i'm in particularly good shape but but when i'm exercising more right when i'm wearing clothes that fit right? Like I feel differently about myself. My body has changed. My perception of myself changes. And so I I do think that those things actually really matter. 
And so when we have uh, physical debilitations, that, that it's not just that they cripple our bodies, but they do cripple our sense of self. And, and I do think it actually does damage our sense of self because damage is being done. It, it's, it's not just, it, it's more so than what we think about. And, th- and that's why I mean by there's a thisness to what our body is. It's like us plus pattern, but I don't think you can just take those things out. And this is actually one of my problems with the, the patternist interpretation is, you know, when somebody dies, it's not clear where the pattern went. And it's not clear you can recreate that, you know, in the same way that you can with information. But also information itself is, is subject to entropy, right? It gets more disordered over time. That's all entropy means. And, you know, it can be lost, it can be corrupted, it can be inaccurate. It's not this perfect transcendental medium. And we don't even really understand what information is, right? right. And, and so it, it, it's, if I think about, like, if I was in a computer or something, I would be a different person because my body would be different. Mm-hmm. And, and I think that that has to be the case. And actually, when I am thinking about AI, one of the things that I'm concerned about is that AI will be very different in the way that it thinks, in part because its physicality is different, its medium is different. And I don't, and I think if we buy too much into the idea that rationality is something that exists outside of us that everyone will agree upon, well, if there is actually true AI, we won't be able to, to hear it in a sense because it will be too alien to us. And if we're going to have future cooperative relationships, and you know, this is one of the reasons why I actually really like talking to transhumanists because they're interested in these things too, is how do you build those kinds of relationships up with something that is kind of alien to, to you in that sense because it, you know, it has a digital brain rather than you know, a, a flesh one like we have. Hmm. And I think that those differences actually really do matter. So as our, um, our as our time is is running out, I want to ask you uh, just one more question, a question sure. that I've asked everyone so far, and you can feel free to take as much time as you need. Um, but what is the one thing that you wish that everyone knew about the world? I would say the thing you know, we've talked a lot about technology and the one thing I wish everyone knew or they wish they knew how to think about is that the way in which we measure things, the metrics that we choose are, are imperfect in, in the sense that once, once we have them, we become attuned to them and they don't quite measure the thing that they're supposed to. And I think that this matters a lot with things like performance. And, you know, I, I'm someone who went to a public prep school is really lucky to, right? Like I wouldn't probably wouldn't be able to afford it otherwise. And, but there are lots of ways to account for something like intelligence, right? Or, or worth or value that can't be put into a metric like a grade, right? Or, you know, like how fast you run or something like that. And, it, you know, it's funny because there's this kind of woo-woo-ness about that, that intangibility to things. But I do think that it's actual inaccuracy, right? That, you know, people can be smart and get bad grades. So I'm actually someone, you know, I, I failed a couple classes like in high school, you know, which isn't true for most people, you know, especially, you know, especially at a place like Stanford. And I, I, I use that as one of my like that's a vital point in my own self story because it's because of those kinds of experiences where I'm like, okay, like I'm not here to get a grade. I'm here to understand 
and it doesn't matter what the metric says if I don't actually get it. Um, and, you know, and I think especially when everything's kind of measured today, right, where it's like, oh, you know, you, you know, how many views did our podcast get or something like that, or how many clicks do we get today? It's we can get so caught up in the metric that we miss whatever the metric's supposed to be getting at. Because, you know, I can buy I can buy clicks on the Internet. Right. <laughs> but yeah. but what we're actually looking for is something else, mm-hmm. uh, you know, engagement. Right. It's just a measure of engagement, but it's not engagement itself. The, the metric is not the thing. Hmm. Yeah. A lot of pastors came to term with that after we all were forced online and then mm-hmm. their metric of counting butts in the seats on a Sunday morning to figure out how well they're doing transitioned to hits on a YouTube video, which they suddenly later realized that not all of those were human people. And the people who did maybe didn't realize that they were being redirected there and they didn't stay there. And it did not equate to actual engagement and interaction. Yeah. And that kind of coming down to earth was difficult for some of them. Mm -hmm. So... Thank you for that. I think that's that's really important to keep in mind um, as in the increasingly digital world. And uh, I want to thank you for coming in and talking with us. Uh, that time yeah, went by very quickly. So it was yeah, fascinating. Yeah, it was... So yeah, thank you very much, Seth. Yeah. Yeah, of course. Thanks for having me. <laughs>